Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If just 40,000 people across Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania had changed their minds, I would have won. That's what Hillary Clinton writes in her memoir, What Happened? In the book, she rejects the carping that her campaign ignored the Midwest. Famously, she didn't visit Wisconsin at all. Looking back at the 2016 results now, what's striking is how much flagging turnout helped Donald Trump that year. He won Wisconsin but got fewer votes there than Mitt Romney, the Republican candidate who lost the state four years before. A slice of the state's electorate, roughly equivalent to the entire city of Madison, just didn't show up in 2016. Early voting turnout this year suggests enthusiasm won't be an issue. Might Trump's divisiveness, surprisingly effective four years ago, come back to bite him this time? With three days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how has Donald Trump changed American political culture? President Trump's effect on domestic policy in his first term has been modest and mostly reversible. The real impact of his blow-it-up style has been felt in the corrosion of every aspect of public life. What would four more years of Mr. Trump's brand of anti-politics mean for the country? In this episode, we'll hear from Trump supporters at one of his last rallies before Election Day, and from two people who served at the top of the Trump administration and came to different conclusions about whether he deserves re-election. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. Charlotte, three days to go until the election. Halloween just around the corner. How are things looking in New York? It's been a really rainy week here in New York, but that hasn't remotely stopped people from lining up to vote early. They have um, just a few more days to vote early if they would like to. And it's interesting because in New York, of course, there's not really a question of which candidate is going to carry the state. But you see older women with walkers, young people, you know, everyone just waiting for, for up to to perhaps even more hours in line to cast their ballots. So it's sort of inspiring to see how many people are out there and so committed to making their vote count. And John, you've been in Pennsylvania this week. You're going back to Pennsylvania again next week. What's your preparation between now and Election Day look like? 
Well, it's going to involve some downtime, some family time on Halloween. I'm going to try to keep my phone off and not check Twitter and stay away from the news for at least 24, maybe even 36 hours. But then I'm going to be back in Pennsylvania because that, according to Elliot Morris, is the likeliest tipping point state. I expect if there are post-election wrangles, it may be there. As you know, Pennsylvania is going to be able to count ballots up until November 6th. So I am anticipating an, an eventful week in Philadelphia. John Prito, how are you? We never ask. It's not because we don't care. But how are things looking in London? Um, thank you for asking. Things in London are fine. We had the endorsement cover leader this week. So that's kept me busy. And like both of you, sort of hunkering down, um, getting ready for not a lot of sleep uh, in election week. All right. We have a lot to talk about in this final podcast before the election. So let's get stuck into it. Last week, we talked about where President Trump has made a big difference on policy. But this week, we want to talk more about the ways in which he's made the country more unhappy and divided, as we put it in the cover story that endorses Joe Biden this week. Now, obviously, that's not how Donald Trump supporters see things. John, you caught up with the president at one of his last campaign events. Uh, that's right, John. I went to a Trump rally in Martinsburg, Pennsylvania, which is a small town in the center of the state. I can't remember how many of these rallies I've been to over the past few years. But, you know, like Grateful Dead concerts, they all kind of feel the same. There's the same sort of over-the-top iconographic pageantry. There's the same odd music choices. One three-song stretch included YMCA, Macho Man, and Fortunate Son, which is about the draft-dodging son of a rich man. With just a week to go, this was the president mobilizing his core vote in a state he has to defend. It was his third rally of the day in rural Pennsylvania. I'm Tammy, and I am from Center County. Okay. I'm Susan, also from Center County. I met a wave of enthusiasm for what he's achieved. Well, what's not to like? <laughs> um, economy, 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 economy. Policy, policy, policy. Uh, all the foreign policies, both economic and border. Um, those are probably the things that identify with me most. I feel that he's done everything he promised he would do. And I'm ready to give him four more years because he's been nothing but fought the whole way through. So I'm, I, he deserves to win. China's being held accountable for the first time. And I'm thrilled about that. And I think he's been strong and assertive. And I, I appreciate that. Jody Eberhardt is a corrections officer from Indiana, Pennsylvania. So I work in a very male-dominated field. I'm very much, you know, for police, for corrections, for guns, things like that, for our safety. Her face mask said women for Trump. And she had a clear, simple explanation of what she likes about the president. You know, getting America back to America. I mean, we still have to do foreign trade and everything like that. But just trying to make more jobs in America, getting our economy back on its feet. A group of men showed up in hard hats and utility vests, some of them carrying signs that read minors for Trump. Well, it's been rough because of the situation with Corona and everything else that just set us back. And we had a warm winter last winter, which didn't help much. So we're hoping this winter will be a cold winter and, and uh, definitely bring the industry back with him getting in office again as well. Seems like he works his butt off for America, and that's, and that's why we love him. A lot of people mention the economy, but others like Trump less for what he has done than for how they see him as a defense against shadowy foes and cultural change. Jane Pilch, and from Alexandria, Pennsylvania. What is it that you like about the president? Well, the fact that he respects the rights of the individual citizen rather than the group think that I feel as though we get from the other side. Climate change, I think, is 
is a ploy to get far more, to take far more of our freedoms than what climate does. Uh, I'm wearing a giant American flag, basically. <laughs> Keith Clark surprised me with how far he took this idea. He'd come all the way up from Hagerstown, Maryland. Uh, well, I just love my country. You know, I love the people here. And, you know, sometimes you have to broadcast your love because the world's full of such darkness now on the other side. You know, you really got to shine that light. The musical backing somehow helped him make his bold claim about President um, Trump. Honestly, I think he's, uh, you know, sent here from God to basically save us from darkness. The easiest way to put it. I've never heard a voter express that sort of eschatological passion about Joe Biden. Donald Trump drew thousands of people to a remote airstrip on a gray Monday afternoon. Joe Biden has been running a comparatively quiet campaign. On the other hand, Martinsburg is in Blair County, Pennsylvania, which Donald Trump won by more than 60 points in 2016. On Tuesday, Joe Biden went to Georgia, which no Democrat has won since 1992. One of them was playing the sort of defense that no candidate wants to play with just a week to go. The other was in Atlanta. Meanwhile, Keith wanted me to know Democrats' real support lies somewhere more sinister. Yeah, and I do want to say that, yeah, I do mean that literally. I think that we have been taken over by some, a dark force that you could call it Luciferian, you could call it Satanism, but it's, it's dark, and I think that Trump was sent by God to clean it up. So. So, John, quite a range of reasons there from Trump supporters explaining why uh, they were at that rally you were at. But very consistent soundtrack. The Trump campaign seems to have a real preference for sort of classic British rock music. There was, I had Elton John in there, David Bowie. The last Trump rally I went to, there was a lot of Rolling Stones, though I think the band now protests against the use of its music at, at Trump rallies. What's going on there? I don't know. I think this is a great article to be written about music choice at Trump rallies. I just want to reassure our listeners that Major Tom really was playing when I was talking to Keith Clark. We did not invent that soundtrack. That's what was on the speakers at great volume. So Charlotte, in those interviews, you heard people explaining their vote for Donald Trump in terms of policy. But that, to me, has always felt like a secondary thing in the Trump administration. I think what people really like about Donald Trump, those who do like him, is is who he is, sort of what he stands for, and how he goes about his business. I agree with you on that. On coal, to take an example, he has tried to pass a few policies, but coal employment has declined over the course of his presidency. So it's more about the signaling. And I think when it comes to his policy platform, I recall that we used to write briefs. We used to write these things called election briefs before each presidential election, where we would have one about education and we would describe each candidate's policies and proposals for education, another one on health care. And we stopped doing that in the Trump era because it was a bit too thin on the Trump side because his candidacy was never really about policy. To the extent that he talked about policy, there wasn't that much to go on. And it was much more about positioning and signaling to a large portion of the electorate that he was on their side in a more, frankly, emotional way than had to do with the real meat of policy. Yeah, it's striking to me that going into this election, the president still doesn't have a healthcare plan. He didn't have one in 2016. He doesn't have one now. It's not clear what his plan is for the economy, presumably more tax cuts, but that's about the extent of the detail on that. It's not clear what the plan is to get COVID-19 under control beyond waiting for a vaccine uh, and so on. Well, there's no party platform, right? The party platform at this year's Republican convention was just, we will support 
President Trump's Make America Great Again vision. There were no actual planks. It was recycled from, from last year. And I think that policy is not really central to what people like about Trump, even when they try to put it in policy terms. It's more of a sort of affinity that they see someone who they think likes them. They see someone who is standing up for people like them. They see someone doing what they would like to do if they were in his position. So it's a very personal political style. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd put it a slightly different way, perhaps, which is that the president has broken so many taboos in American politics over the past four years. And each time he breaks a taboo, he demands of his followers, his supporters, that they acquiesce in the breaking of that taboo with him. And through that process, he binds them very closely to him, to the point where they can't really change their minds without abandoning an enormous amount of their worldview. And I think that's part of what explains this peculiar intensity that some Republicans, at least, feel towards the president. I think that's absolutely right. And at a certain point, the taboo breaking becomes the point. The taboo breaking becomes what people like about him. And upholding sort of social norms is seen as wishy-washy or false or something that you don't really believe in. The more taboos he breaks, the more people want to see him sort of transgress in that way again, the more it becomes a sign of authenticity and of the way he fights for them. Just to add to that, there is a degree to which this is so much about style and signaling, but I don't want to overstate in that there is a substantive effect that his policies and his signaling have had on American lives and on on non-American lives. I mean, you look at his immigration policy and his separation of parents and children at the border with hundreds of children still not able to reunite with his parents. I mean, that is a real, very real manifestation of that signaling that he had to his voters in the 2016 election. Similarly on immigration, you know, one of the first things that he did was pass the ban on travel from Muslim-majority countries that was subject to numerous legal challenges. But it's not like he hasn't backed up some of these taboo-breaking pronouncements with policy action. Without litigation, you can see that he would have had a really dramatic impact on the Americans uh, that could come to this country, on environmental deregulation. Um, in some cases, he he has been victorious in those cases and other instances, the litigation continues to trudge on. But it's not totally empty promises, is my point. You know, we should acknowledge the degree to which this has had a substantive impact on America and American people in many ways. Yeah, I think you're completely right to bring us back to that, Charlotte. I mean, one of the things we do before writing an endorsement leader in a presidential election is have an all-staff meeting where everybody who works at The Economist can contribute. And one of the points that was made in that by Katrine, our colleague who writes about the environment, is that if Donald Trump is re-elected on November the 3rd, in her estimation, the chance of keeping um, global warming to below three degrees Celsius um, compared with pre-industrial temperatures could be gone, you know, gone forever, really. So despite the president's sort of policy light approach to this election, it's not the case that there aren't really meaningful policy changes that hang on the outcome. And just to reiterate for our listeners that may not follow this day in, day out. 1.5 degrees is the target for mitigating the worst effects of climate change. So three degrees involves a lot of damage for not just distant islands in the Pacific, but American coastal cities. So there are very real short-term and long-term implications. Okay. Thank you both. In a moment, we'll hear from Donald Trump's former press secretary. But first, a reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you really should be. 
You'll get the best offer by heading to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. Our cover story this week sets out why we're urging Americans to vote for Joe Biden. It's a brilliant cover illustration, which is worth the subscription fee alone. John Fasman has been writing about the Hunter Biden saga and about disinformation. And when you've had enough of US politics, there's a piece on the Albanian royal family, the House of Zog. Subscribing is easy. That link for a special rate is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. It's in the notes for this episode. An early indication this was not going to be a normal presidency was when the White House press secretary started arguing with the media about the size of the inauguration day crowd. Photographs of the inaugural proceedings were intentionally framed in a way to minimize the enormous support that had gathered on the National Mall. No one had numbers because the National Park Service, which controls the National Mall, does not put any out. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration Period. That exchange cemented Sean Spicer in the public imagination as the frontman for the convention-busting new administration. These days, he's an author. His latest book is called Leading America, President Trump's Commitment to People, Patriotism and Capitalism. I spoke to him about how the president has changed American politics. I think what people misunderstood was how his populist message resonated with the voters, how different he presented himself and the unique tools that he brought to the race. Everybody else had these sort of traditional models of fundraising and voter outreach. And he had something unbelievably unique that no one had ever seen before. And largely because they hadn't seen it, they, they dismissed it. I don't think that you'll ever see another candidate on either side of our political aisle that can replicate what he did and how he did it. Serving in the White House for anyone is a big honour, so that's on on the plus side. On the negative side, you left after six months. It looked like those six months were pretty difficult for a lot of different reasons. How do you view that time looking back on it now? Um, It's an interesting question. I'd say mixed. I remember working on the first joint address that the president gave and tuning and finessing the speech that he gave to the joint session of Congress. And it was this home run. I've got you know, a picture on my wall of working on that speech with him. And it was just, it was a pinch yourself kind of moment where you're thinking, I'm grown up as a working class kid and I'm here in the map room of the White House editing and revising the joint address to Congress with the President of the United States. Those were kind of moments where I was like, wow, we killed it. And then there were days, for example, the, the firing of Comey, um, where we were behind the curve and we we're getting killed. So There were days in which you were like, wow, I can't believe I did this. And then there were other days where you're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I did that. It seems that the president is somebody who changes people who come into contact with him. How do you think working for Donald Trump changed you? You know, you went from being this policy wonk communications guy who'd worked at the top echelons of the Republican Party, but wasn't a famous person to being a famous person who was the White House podium the whole time became well known. So that's the sort of superficial change. What have been the more sort of profound changes? I think the fault lines in the country and the understanding of our institutions has become much more profound. I've been working with the media for 20 plus years, and I've never seen the vitriol and the personal 
nature of it as much as I did and have since the launch of the Trump administration. There's a variety of reasons, whether it's big tech or corporate America or Hollywood. You know, we used to have late night shows that were truly funny. It's now gotten like very personal and mean and very one-sided. And I think there's been this shift in America. And part of the reason that I wrote the book is to explain to people what, what that shift is and why it's important to understand it. Because Trump, in a weird way, shined a bright light on so many of the cultural issues that our society is dealing with in all of these major institutions. Sean, we talked a lot about the president's communication. How about the president as an administrator? Because that's obviously a large part of the job, or at least it, it ought to be. How do you rate, having seen it up close, the president's ability and competence as an administrator? I think at the end of the day, you rate someone primarily by their accomplishments, right? So in other words, did they achieve the goal they were setting out? And I think in the president's case, the end goal is, yes, he said I was going to do the following things and they got done. He's very interesting because he doesn't necessarily put bounds around somebody. So there were days in which he told me, hey, go do the following. And I'd say, well, gosh, that's, uh, that's actually the Department of Treasury. And he said, well, okay, then call them and get it done. There might be a hierarchy about how something's supposed to take all the way to the top. The president, as you've seen, you know, publicly many times, is the kind of guy when he's got a problem or an issue, he just picks up the phone and he calls that individual, just says, hey, you know, and he doesn't, which is a good thing in a way, because it, he gets things done. There's no, let me call the guy, he's going to call the guy, he's going to call the girl, he's going to call the guy, he's going to call the girl. I mean, boom, 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 right? And gets trapped in bureaucracy. He just gets the job done. And I think there's something beautiful about that in Washington that for so long has been tied up in bureaucracy and things not happening because some cog clogged the whole thing up. There's some huge advantages to the way that the president operates. And then there are some some times in which you would wish the process would slow down. Sean, last question, if, if I may. What do you think will be judged to be President Trump's main accomplishment in his first term? Uh, hands down, the, the number of judges he appointed to the federal judiciary, uh, including obviously three Supreme Court justices. From a conservative standpoint, that's mind-blowing. And I think there's no question that will go down to me as his greatest accomplishment. Charlotte, talking to Sean Spicer, I was quite struck by how much of his concern when he was in the White House seemed to be about winning the next news cycle, as opposed to whether the things that the president was doing were good things or bad things. But I guess maybe that's to be expected in that job. One of the claims he makes, though, is that President Trump is really good at getting things done because he just picks up the phone and gets people to do what he wants. Do you think that's true? I think there probably are instances that President Trump's staff could point to as an example of how he just cut through the thicket of bureaucracy and was able to get something impressive done quickly. And it certainly is the case that it's hard to get things done in Washington if you do the traditional route. In the area of reporting where I spent a lot of time in energy, I was struck in conversations that I had with those who oppose President Trump's regulatory actions in the environment that poor rulemaking, sort of quick and rushed rulemaking, as well as poorly filed legal briefs, actually undermined President Trump's goal. And David Doniger at the NRDC Action Fund, the NRDC being one of the main environmental groups that has challenged President Trump's uh, environmental rules, 
said to me, you know, imagine where we'd be if they knew what they were doing. I thought that that was a good case study in the idea that, yes, you can do things in a quick way, but actually it may not be particularly effective in the long term. I think that's exactly right. I think that pick up the phone and get it done attitude is tremendously appealing rhetorically. But it also points to the fundamental weakness of his presidency, right? He was really bad at marshalling congressional support for difficult things. It took him multiple attempts to get his travel ban approved. He has a losing record in the courts. And all of that speaks to his inability to master the processes of government, which aren't sexy. They aren't what is going to win any votes. But someone who is good at that will get more done than someone who is bad at it. I agree with both of you on that. I think President Trump's been an extraordinary and effective president. You can see that in his legislative record, which I think is amazingly thin for a president who, at least for a while, had majorities in both the House and the Senate. When he had those majorities, he got a tax cut passed. And then the only other piece of significant legislation that I can think of, really, that he got done in his time was the First Steps Act, criminal justice reform, which had some bipartisan support, but it's a fairly small bore measure. That's a really, really slight record. And it creates a tension, I think, when we come to evaluate the Trump presidency. I think a lot of Donald Trump's critics, particularly on the left, dramatically overstate what he's been able to do as president and and the effectiveness of his presidency. I think this has been more a story of incompetence rather than a story about a bad man hatching an evil master plan. Well, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive, necessarily. I think if you look at some of his plans, you can make a moral judgment about them, frankly. I mean, as Laura Bush, the Republican former first lady did of his detention centers along the border. I do think, though, that just broadly, if you think about the way that government conventionally works, a president has advisors who are experts in their field and who support and challenge the president and try to get as much done, you know, to advance his agenda to the extent possible. And the president has had advisors who have come and gone, right? And then you have them leave and and have extraordinary condemnations from the likes of Jim Mattis. Um, And the people who remain are his family. And you can look at Jared Kushner as a prime example of this. He has this huge slate of responsibilities, ending the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, solving the opioid crisis, overseeing the border wall with Mexico. He was involved in overseeing the fight against COVID. He was the person who wanted to overhaul the Republican platform to make it much simpler, but there was disagreement on it. And the result was that they didn't have any new platform at all. So I think that there is a degree to which there started out with some an administration that looked a bit more conventional in terms of its makeup, even with the presence of the Trump children. And then as time has gone on, it's it's become less and less conventional in the composition of his advisors. Yeah, Charlotte, I don't think we necessarily disagree with each other that much on this. It's maybe just a question of emphasis. But I just keep thinking about what a really competent president with Donald Trump's set of instincts and political talents might have been able to do. And the thought of that is genuinely terrifying and more terrifying than the four years that we've just experienced have been in practice, if that makes sense. That does make sense. One of the things that's most remarkable about President Trump is the degree that he has either explicitly expounded a theory that's false or elevated some kind of conspiracy theory. And the list of these is so long. Of course, there's Obama not being an American citizen, which was part of what gave birth to his political career, that Obama supports ISIS, Ted Cruz's dad being involved in the assassination of JFK, 
the MSNBC host Joe Scarborough killed one of his staffers, that Biden covered up a failed assassination attempt on Osama bin Laden, that hydroxychloroquine cures COVID. It's just a lot, a lot, a lot of these theories that he's elevated. And I think that that has the effect of undermining public discourse and public trust in a very real and substantive way that regardless of who wins next week, will stay with America for some time to come. And undoing that damage is going to be hard work. And yet, John, because the president is a taboo breaker, his supporters often interpret that as a willingness to tell the truth. Is that something you found in Pennsylvania at the rally you attended? Yeah, that was striking on Monday. It was not just that Trump sort of prevaricated in the way that politicians often prevaricate, or even that he sort of whipped up fears about what his opponent would do. I mean, all politicians do that, too. It was that he said things that were just manifestly untrue in the way that hydroxychloroquine kills COVID is manifestly untrue. He promised his supporters free Regeneron treatment whenever they want it. But that came just 20 minutes after they showed a video clip of him railing against socialized medicine. But the treatment that he received, that antibody treatment, is not FDA approved. It's going to be extremely expensive. Nobody is going to get it anytime soon. It just can't happen. So the extent to which he promises supporters things that are just impossible and that is not held to account when they don't happen is really striking. John, from what I can tell from a distance in these closing rallies, Donald Trump doesn't seem to be enjoying himself in the way that he was in 2016. I mean, there was a rally recently where he seemed to be fantasizing about jumping in a truck and driving away and started talking about what a great life he had before he went into politics with a tone of regret, as far as I could see. Yeah, he was happiest on stage on Monday talking about 2016. He mentioned Hillary Clinton, and people started chanting, lock her up. And that brought a smile to his face. But this race really has been a slog for him. He was always a fairly angry politician, but he has seemed much angrier and more sort of joyless on the stump this year than he did four years ago. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to hear from another prominent former Trump administration official. This one won't be voting for the president. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist Asks podcast this week has an extended interview with John Bolton, a former veteran of Republican administrations going back to Reagan, and most recently, Donald Trump's former national security advisor. He says he's not voting for the president, and he has a stark warning about how things could pan out if he were to lose the election. You will see a lot of Republicans who were not necessarily very vocal in their criticism of Trump insist nonetheless that he honored the outcome of the election. If Trump tries to sow confusion, it will be Republicans who make it clear that his conduct is no longer acceptable. I don't think he's going to go graciously. I think he will be the crazy uncle tweeting from the basement for a long time. And I think it's it's been detrimental to the body politic in the United States. I think his personal style of attack, he's not the only one who engages in it, but he's the 
the, uh, the most advanced practitioner. And I think it's damaging to civil society when that becomes the norm rather than the exception. So I wish you were going to go away, but I, I, I don't think that's remotely possible. So I'll, I'll be around along with a lot of others to deal with it. John Bolton there was talking about what Donald Trump has done to the body politic in America. And that's something I wanted to get a bit more detail on. So I talked to Liliana Mason, who's a political scientist at the University of Maryland and one of the best scholars on toxic partisanship in America. She told me the Trump presidency has intensified both sets of voters' attachment to their party in an unhealthy way. What happens when we have this really intense attachment to the parties is that it removes accountability. That's really the biggest problem. When people are so attached to the status of their party that they will do anything for victory, then they won't ever vote against their own party, which means that if their party does terrible things, they're not going to vote them out. And so we lose the accountability that we require for a functioning democracy because people just aren't being responsive. And has Donald Trump made that attachment party more intense? And if so, how has he done that? Yeah, so Trump is sort of special. (laughs) Um, The Republican Party for a long time has been doing this sort of politics of racial division and white racial resentment. But they've done it in this dog whistle way, which is sort of quietly um, and not overtly and really not legislating very much to to placate the, the people who really like that kind of messaging. And what Trump has done is say that part out loud. And so really, really satisfying the voters who really like the sort of white racial resentment type of messaging. And those voters haven't heard a politician really talk that way before, and they really, really like it. And so that is part of Trump's appeal, is that he's willing to say these things that other politicians didn't think it was really possible to say out loud. He just says them. And that makes people who have those opinions maybe lurking in their minds, makes them feel much more comfortable about saying those types of things. And it also makes them feel like it's okay to say these types of things. Liliana, one thing that I found talking to Trump supporters at rallies is that they really do not like being accused of being racists. And they they think it's an easy way for people on the left in American politics to discount their opinions. Now, that's not exactly what you're saying here. You're talking about racial resentment and the president exploiting racial resentment. So can you tease apart what the difference is between racism and playing on a sense of racial resentment in the way Donald Trump does? One of the biggest differences between the parties right now is whether or not people believe that systemic racism exists at all. Generally, if you believe that systemic racism exists in America and still affects people and still hurts Black Americans, then you are almost certainly a Democrat. And if you don't believe that to be true, then you're almost certainly a Republican. And so it's not about individual people being racists. It's about whether or not they believe the system has racism baked into it. And that's where we get this reactionary idea of we don't need to be fighting for racial equality anymore. We already did it. We've already done too much of it. And now it's white people who are being discriminated against. It's different from being a racist. (laughs) It's about a worldview and how you understand the way society works. 
Liliana, there's been work on polarization and partisanship in American politics going back a long time and polling that tries to measure the intensity of negative feeling towards voters from the other party. But you've done a lot of work recently and commissioned a lot of opinion polls on a much more toxic and potentially violent kind of partisanship. Can, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this is a uh, new work I've been doing with Nathan Calmo at Louisiana State University, which is basically just pushing the boundaries of how extreme partisanship can be. So we just started asking kind of more extreme questions. Things like, do you think the other party is evil? To what extent is violence justified? And what we've been seeing is is really that th- there's a substantial portion of Americans who who are willing to say, for instance, that the other party is downright evil. Um, We can see about 50% of Americans saying that about the other party. When we ask, do you think it's okay to use violence for political ends, if your party loses the presidential election in 2020, about 20% of people say it's okay to use violence. We certainly have been seeing consistent levels of it since 2017. And in fact, we saw a spike in 2018, which we think is related to the 2018 election. And we're starting to see another increase now as we get closer to the 2020 election. So Charlotte, Liliana talked about radical partisanship there. And clearly Donald Trump didn't invent intense partisanship in American politics But I think one of the things that's been so unusual about him as a president is that most presidents, at least rhetorically, are committed to bridging the divide between the two parties, whereas Donald Trump just seems to have spent the past four years stoking it. There's never really been a point at which he attempted to be president for the slightly more than 50% of the electorate that didn't vote for him in 2016. I think that's right. And I think Going back to our earlier conversation, you asked, is he just incompetent or is he a mad, evil despot? And I didn't mean to say that he is a mad, evil despot. I don't really know what that is. Um, But there are a few things that I think that you can say about his presidency that are relatively straightforward. One is that he clearly has built his career on stoking that racial resentment. Um, another is that he has a, a has a clear disdain for fact and a clear disdain for conventional American institutions. And all of those add up to being um, someone who is quite a remarkable person to lead the world's biggest and most prosperous democracy. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting about uh what Liliana said is that there's this distinction that I think, and this question about whether to make a distinction about Trump's willingness to capitalize on racial resentment and to use that to to fuel his supporters, and the question of actual racism. And I think over the past three years, four years, that the conversation about what it means to be a racist on the left has changed quite a lot. That you don't have to think that people of color, you know, can't go to the same schools as people who are white. And and that's not necessarily the definition of racism anymore, right? On the left, there is a, a feeling that failing to acknowledge the clear problems that people of color endure um, and continue to endure despite the civil rights movement, um, that failing to acknowledge those and instead feeding fear of looting and people of color taking over the suburbs, which Donald Trump has done, whether those are explicitly racist. It is important to ground 
that debate in some real numbers. So since 2017, there's been a 55% increase in white nationalist hate groups, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, um, which is quite a big jump. In the years uh, prior, there had been a steady decline in the number of hate groups operating in the U.S. And since 2017, you've seen that number climb quite dramatically. I think that highlights one of the things that's most dangerous about his presidency. In preparation for Christmas piece, I've been reading a lot about Reconstruction. And what's striking is what a long antecedent President Trump's sort of anti-PC attitude has. As soon as six years after the Civil War is over, you had white Southern politicians saying, essentially, we've freed the slave. That's enough. We don't have to do any more for anybody. Uh, And so that is one way to interpret President Trump's anti-PC attitude, this sort of cynicism toward any sort of race-conscious law, and more broadly, his conception of America as a country in which everyone is equal before the law. The most heartbreaking thing about, about Reconstruction was the progress that America made in a short time toward becoming a genuine multiracial democracy. That progress ended and America endured Jim Crow laws for, for nearly a century at the cost of uncountable African-American lives, uncountable lost potential. I think that the risk now is not that we snap back into some form of Jim Crowism. It's that we lose the progress we're making toward becoming a genuine multiracial democracy. And in doing so, we sort of we sort of take the air out of the idea that that is something worth achieving. That's something places like Nigeria, Indonesia, other countries should work toward achieving. I think that's the great danger of his sort of rhetoric. We haven't mentioned COVID-19 so far in the podcast And I think this is a good moment to do it within this discussion of partisanship. One of the things that's been really striking watching America this year compared to all the other wealthy countries that have suffered from COVID-19 is the extent to which mask wearing has become a partisan issue. And I, I think that's largely Donald Trump's doing. And if you wanted one example of the power of sort of extreme partisanship to bleed from electoral politics into all other areas of American life. That's it. I was talking to Lynn Vavrick, who's a really great political scientist at UCLA. And she has a paper out uh, with a couple of co-authors, which points out that how people feel about COVID-19 in America, how worried they are about the disease, how big a threat they think it is, breaks down entirely along party lines. And that the biggest factor in taking the threat from COVID-19 seriously is not whether there's a lot of COVID-19 in your particular area at the time. You know, it's not, in fact, led by outbreaks um, of the virus. It's whether you are a Republican or a Democrat. Yeah, it's, did that sound as striking as I, me- as I meant to sound? It did sound striking. Are you just saying that? Are you just being nice? <laughs> I'm not being nice. I think it did sound striking. It, is, it, it shouldn't be the case. I saw evidence of this at his at his rally in Pennsylvania. Maybe 15% of the people there were wearing masks, and they were sitting close together. They were shouting and cheering. Um, just for the record, I wore two masks. I double masked. But this is just a basic public health precaution that should be uncontroversial. This election is taking place just as America hits record numbers of COVID cases around the country. Joe Biden just released his last slate of ads. They're basically all COVID-focused. You can hear President Trump at his rallies is really 
frustrated at COVID and at the attention that's being spent on it. I don't know if he's upset at what's doing to its campaign or he's jealous of its media coverage, but this appears to be a COVID-dominant election, and I expect that'll be the issue on which a lot of people are voting and will vote on Tuesday. Speaking of Tuesday, what will your election day preparation look like and what will you be looking for on election night? I'll be watching Pennsylvania, but I don't think that we'll have an answer on election night. So I think it's more going to be election week. Yeah, I'll be in Pennsylvania and watching what happens there. What I will be watching on election night are Florida, Arizona and Texas, all three states in which Joe Biden has a chance of winning. If he wins those three states, even if he wins two of them, even if he wins Florida, really, it's functionally very, it's not going to be over, but it's very difficult to see how Donald Trump wins without Florida. And if Biden wins Florida and Arizona and Texas, then however long it takes Pennsylvania and Wisconsin to count ballots, it's over. The other thing is that we and others have talked a lot about how Donald Trump's campaigning has been quite defensive. You know, he's in a part of Pennsylvania that he won by a huge margin, as Fassman pointed out earlier. He went to Nebraska this week, which is hardly a swing state. And you see um, Joe Biden in Georgia. You know, that seems to be a sign of Joe Biden's confidence. It could be a sign of foolhardy campaigning if it looks like he's, you know, that the polls are wrong and that he's under threat on election night or over the course of election week. So I'll be interested to see how some of those more aggressive campaigning moves by the Biden campaign pan out. All right. Well, talking of aggressive moves, I have a quiz for you guys before you go. The first time The Economist endorsed a presidential candidate was in 1980. We backed Reagan. The lead article expressed misgivings about his heavy ideological baggage, but backed him because he promised a firmer line abroad. We're also a bit wary of his age. Reagan was the oldest man ever to seek the presidency at the time. Joe Biden has that honor now, of course. There can be no certainty that Mr. Reagan would have the agility of mind to see the critical issues, we wrote. Reagan sought to downplay these concerns by releasing his medical records. The Economist noted one particular ailment. What was wrong with his right thumb? His right thumb? Is it some sort of injury from lots of horseback riding? I feel like there are a limited number of things that can be wrong with one's right thumb. It's like (laughs) carpal tunnel arthritis lack of flexion. I feel like my answer outs me as someone who spent his whole life in cities and suburbs. I have no idea what happens to your thumb when you ride a horse. It was osteoarthritis. So I think Charlotte gets a third of a point. <laughs> I'll take a third of a point is a victory for me. I'll take it. Reagan also suffered moderate hearing loss, thought to be the result of exposure to gunshot noise while filming westerns. What ailment disqualified him from joining combat operations in World War II? Flat feet. That's the classic. That's the classic. I'll throw my weight behind that one. He was nearsighted. Reagan wore contact lenses. When delivering a speech, he'd remove one lens so he could read his notes and leave one lens in so he could see the audience. Wow. Huh. Well, that's all from us. We'll be back next week talking about the election result, if we have one, or about the known unknowns, if we don't. The very latest from me and from the rest of our US politics team on the election results next week. Make sure you catch Wednesday morning's episode of The Intelligence, The Economist's daily podcast. Meanwhile, leave us a rating and reviews if you're enjoying the podcast. You can also get in touch on email. The address is radio at economist.com. Thanks very much for listening. 
We'll have more checks and balance next week. Bye, John. Do we need to, yeah, do we need to do our goodbyes? <laughs> oh, did we not do the goodbye? I'm sorry, I'm such a doofus. Okay, gosh, sorry. All right, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. I'm off to vote. Me too. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.